Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Check this out, y'all. Yo, yo, what's the word? Uh, Welcome back to the Read a Book podcast. This is your host. I am Sean Little. Uh, You can find me across the internet at I am Sean Little. And I'm joined by the one, the only, uh, Mr. JB. You can find him across the internet at my name is JB. Uh, He's been my co-host as we've been talking through uh, our first book on the Read a Book podcast, which is Divided by Faith, uh, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America by Michael O. Emerson and Christian Smith. Today's episode uh, is dealing with chapter 5 and chapter 6 technically, uh, but my co-host JB wants to uh, spend a little bit more time on chapter 4 from our last episode. Um, JB, what's up, sir? How you doing? I'm doing all right, man. I'm chilling. Yeah, yeah. And before before we get into uh, chapter 5 and 6 and even sort of the segue from chapter 4, uh, I need to apologize for our delay over the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, I've mentioned this uh, previously, but my wife and daughter and I uh, moved from uh, Hawaii. We were living uh, on Maui back to the mainland, and we've sort of been uh, in a lot of transition, and, and the transition has been kind of hectic. Uh, so we fell out of pocket. That's my apology. Uh, we're back on our weekly uh, grind here going forward. Uh, so thank you again for everyone who's rocking with us on the Read a Book podcast. For those of you guys who are engaging uh, on social media and leaving us voicemails, uh, again, you can find me at I am Sean Little. Uh, find JB at my name is JB. And for those of you who are reading the book and you want to add your actual voice to the conversation, uh, you can leave us a voicemail at 470-722-0782. Uh, we have one of those voicemails to share a little bit later on in this episode. Uh, but for now, JB, give us uh, some thoughts that you had on uh, chapter four before we get into five and six. Okay. Well, I mean, it wasn't really a lot, I don't think. Um, let's see. Let me go, go back to it. One moment. Sorry, brother. Yeah. And as JB finds uh, the, the Q&A stuff that he was intrigued by, again, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, the authors of this book, uh, did phone surveys as they compiled data for uh, Divided by Faith. Uh, and some of those phone surveys obviously developed into larger conversations. Um, and chapter four, just as a reminder, the title was Colorblind Evangelicals Speak on the, quote, race problem. Uh, so the Q&As that he's talking about is people who I who self-identify as evangelicals uh, beginning to unpack and share some of their um, ideas on, quote, the race problem in America. So it says, this is page 87. It says, after realizing the respondents were not giving specific examples, we attempted to press 
them further, even when probed. We often could not get specific concrete examples, as this exchange with a Pentecostal woman illustrates. It says, so would you say there's a race, there's racism in this country? And she says, oh, yes, for sure. And what are concrete examples of that? What does that look like? And then she says, what does it look like? What do you mean? Well, where is the racism? What exactly is it? And then she says, we don't have racism here. <laughs> I think it is in, in, in I think it's in your big cities. Um, so what exactly is racism in these big cities? What exactly do you mean? And then she says, well, I mean, the whites don't like the blacks and got all kinds of things against them and vice versa. It just isn't whites against blacks. Blacks don't like white people. And so um, I think the, the, the part that that uh, I think because I, I think it was something that was going on at the time um, why that stood out to me. Uh, I think I might have been talking about it in one of my classes or something like that, but you know, it's it's so crazy to me how how um, racism that like like this woman says um uh, we don't have racism here. I think it's in your big cities. Like, it's so crazy how, you know, racism and, like, people can do and say racist things still. And to this day, um, racism is so, it's, it's so um, large that and so accepted that I think that sometimes people um, don't even realize that they're that people are racist towards them, or people don't realize that they're being racist. You know what I'm saying? So um, I don't know. It just it, it just kind of like it just kind of. I think at the time, whenever I said that I wanted I wanted to touch back on it, there was something going on that I wanted to talk about, but I don't remember. But but I. But just trying to remember, I, I remember feeling like, you know, because um, if you if you if you um, if you read if you read up a little bit further before that, um, it says, let me see, I have to go back one more page. It says a substantial number of respondents simply cannot cite specific examples. Uh, they would let's see, let's see. Um, they would either change the subject, continue to talk in vague generalities, um, or simply plead ignorance on the issue. For example, this evangelical uh, covenant woman said, "I don't know. I don't see it. I don't see blacks being discriminated against." I think it's very subtle in my state. It's more obvious. I think probably in other parts of the country. Um, uh, Episcopalian woman gave much the same response. Um, I don't know how to answer that. I really don't. You know, discrimination, I think, is a problem in certain areas. Um, see, we're sheltered from that. Uh, I, you know, 
I'm trying to think of what I read and that's not even fair because that's more of a biased option. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's like these people, you know, um, I feel like people, people respond like that. A lot of the times people, people feel like, oh, it's not, you know, I don't see it or, or, you know, that's, that's somewhere else because we, we, we're, we're trained that racism is calling somebody the N word. You know what I'm saying? Like that's racism. Sure. Or racism, racism is only like, oh, I don't want to sit next to you cause you're black or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, but, yes. but, the, but there's so, there's so many other forms of racism that are so uh, general now and so like and so accepted as normal that we don't even realize that it's racism. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And so let me kind of press you on that, you know, for people who are listening and maybe they don't know what you're saying. Um, so if I'm not, you know, whether you're a white person or a black person and you can give whatever specifics you want, but, it, but if me as a white guy, if I'm not directly using the n-word um or choosing to discriminate against black folk you know if i'm a if i'm an owner or a boss and i say well no i'm not going to hire any black people um or i don't know if i have an opportunity to build uh, friendships, social structure relationships and i say well i only want to i only want white friends i don't want no black friends if i'm not taking direct actions that are racist um what are indirect things or subtle things or general things like you said? What are some of those? Okay, for instance, whenever whenever I was in high school, I would I live I live I live on the east side of Oklahoma City, right? And on the east side, the pre the, the number on my home, my house phone, the prefix was four two four four two seven, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, and so when I'm filling out job applications, you know, I had to start putting my friends' uh, phone numbers in, you know what I'm saying? Or got, I had to get a cell phone or something like that because if my um, if my application had a 424 number or a 427 number, then they automatically knew I was on the east side and I was probably black, you know what I'm saying? And I wouldn't get a sure. call back. Uh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, so it's not so like you 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 know like uh like somebody doing the hiring is probably just looking down, looking through their numbers, looking through their applications, and seeing the number and going ah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? You know, and not even sure. realizing that that just that just that hesitation is racist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you I think that's that. good, and that reminds me. Go ahead. Go ahead I'm sorry. I was saying that's that's like. And that's that's a form of racism you can't even see. And I think that just goes back to, and this really does, I think, expand the idea. And this is exactly what you're talking about. But I think this is what the book is on about as well. Expanding the idea of what is, quote, racist as Emerson, um, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. They introduced language that has been really helpful. The racialized society uh, is the language that they're using, that our society uh, has been racialized. So there is that brings meaning and hierarchy to things. Uh, So because our society is racialized, certain zip codes 
have a hierarchy to them or a racialization to them. Uh, and you were what you were saying, certain area codes have a racialization or a hierarchy to them. Um, and that is uh, a, a byproduct of the fact that we live in a racialized society where certain people live in certain zip codes. And because they live in those zip codes, they have certain area codes. Um, and all of that sort of speaks um, – maybe even sort of unintentionally, like you were saying, JB, as a as an employer looks at uh, the potential employees trying to get a job, he sees area codes. And because we live in a, in a racialized society that has very geographic um, racialized realities as well, that the black folk live in one part of town, white folk live on one part of town, uh, that zip codes and area codes can speak. But again, the point of me saying that is to affirm what you're saying, but also to say, tie that back into the idea that we've seen in this book uh, time and again, that America is a racialized society, which I think um, expands much of the idea that we saw in chapter four and that we'll continue to see um, in chapter five and six, that uh, racism is not only an individual concept. It's not merely a one-for-one one idea where, hey, if I'm a white guy and I'm not, quote, racist, then racism doesn't exist because it's bigger than that. Um, the implications of it are larger and the applications of it uh, are larger. Um, real quick, any other comments from Chapter 4? No, I think that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's gravy. Well, uh, I'm going to pause us briefly for uh, a, a brief uh, break, advertising break. Uh, so we're going to pause just for a moment and we will be right back with y'all. Uh, back like we never left this time, uh, just a few moments and not a couple of weeks uh, this go around. So thanks for staying with us, rocking with us. Uh, again, this is uh, Sean Little uh, and my co-host is JB. We are discussing the Divided by Faith book, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America this week. Uh, and even now after that break, we're looking more specifically uh, at chapter five and chapter six. Uh, so let's take a look at chapter five. Uh, the title is Controlling One's Own Destiny, Explaining Economic Inequality Between Blacks and Whites. And again, I think we're going to see some common themes uh, that JB was just discussing. Uh, again, and we've seen this throughout the book thus far. Uh, there definitely seems to be a group of people, and I don't want to only say that it's white people, but I think in large it is white people, uh, that think that race, racism, and the racialized society can be measured by the individual. So if I, as an individual, am not racist, uh, then racism doesn't exist. But I think what the authors are pushing for, uh, and what JB was talking about before the commercial break, uh, is that racism in the racialized society has far more to do with uh, institutions than it does uh, individuals. So I think a really powerful uh, and fascinating quote is what the fifth chapter opens up with. Rodney Stark and Charles Glock are quoted saying, Christian thought and thus Western civilization are permeated with the idea that people are individually in control of and responsible for their own destinies. Uh, so not only Christian thought, but as a byproduct of Christian thought, Western civilization in general, uh, the epicenter of it seems to be the individual, the singular person, the autonomous man. Um, and that has huge implications when we try to understand, you know, race and the racialized society, uh, individuals versus uh, institutions. So um, it's worth noting uh, that 
as we get into this chapter, um, there's a reference to uh, the general social survey that was conducted by the National Opinion Research Center in Chicago. Again, what they're exploring in this chapter is explaining economic inequality between uh, blacks and whites. And very early on in the chapter, we see that uh, African Americans fall below the poverty line more than three times as frequently as non-Hispanic whites. Uh, and there's vast economic inequality between blacks and whites. So uh, looking at the general social survey and then doing their own survey uh, as well, we're trying to figure out you know, how do evangelicals um, explain uh, economic inequality between white and black folks. Uh, and one more thing that's worth pointing out, you know, in this uh, national, uh, I'm sorry, in the general social survey, um, basically phone calls are made. It's a phone call survey. Um, and here's the question that's asked to people, the question that uh, folks are answering throughout this chapter. Um, here's the question. On average, blacks have worse jobs, income, and housing than white people. And so the person on the other end of the phone is asked, do you think that these differences are, one, because most blacks have less inborn ability to learn, two, because most blacks just don't have the motivation or willpower to pull themselves up out of poverty, three, because most blacks don't have the chance for education that it takes to rise out of poverty, or four, mainly due to discrimination. And it goes on to say several things. Two that I want to highlight, and we'll start with this first, is that compared to other whites, white conservative Protestants, so uh, evangelical Protestant Christian white people, are more supportive of explanations uh, that sort of blame the individual, um, which deals with um, a lack of motivation by black people as the number one reason for black-white inequality uh, when it comes to uh, economic inequality. So black people are broke because uh, black people are lazy um, is essentially, you know, uh, the, 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 the huge nutshell version of that um, idea. JB, to what extent have you heard that idea that black folks uh, are in poverty at higher rates than white people because they're lazy or they don't try hard or they don't work hard enough. Um, have you heard that throughout your life? What do you think about that? I mean, I've heard it so much to the point to where I know when I get on a job, I got I to gotta walk faster. I got uh, you know, to show up earlier, stay later. Because that that stereotype and that that mentality and that idea is not only um, not only there, but it's so engraved in society that I you know people don't even realize that they look at it that way, look at us that way. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I remember I worked at a job um, uh, binding books, you know. And I remember um, walking right, I'm like literally like walking um, next to like two other guys, and we're walking from our, from the break room into the um, into the work area, and one of the other guys in the other area goes, 
uh, why are you walking so slow? And I remember thinking, like, I'm like, I'm, I'm walking the same pace as everybody else. You know what I'm saying? Like, that idea and that mentality is so ingrained that, that like, it's almost, it, it's, it's almost like warped the, the, um, the view of how people view black people. That you don't even realize. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, we're just seeing different. I mean, yeah. I, 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 it's hard to explain, you know, but um, but yeah, I've definitely seen that and come across it so many times, and I've heard it. Yeah, you know, and you most of life. Yeah, I mean, I've I've often heard the phrase that, you know, I have to work twice as hard to get half as far. That's true. I mean that that. I mean, that's so true. I kind of, I kind of like to, I guess like the best example I can give is with like, with rap music, right? Um, so here, people always ask me like, who's going to blow up from Oklahoma first? You know what I'm saying? And I, I always tell people, man, like, if anybody blows up from Oklahoma, it'll be some white kid and yeah you were saying that yeah yeah the reason is is because like for me like or anybody black like that's what we're supposed to do you know what i'm saying you know that's like you know so for somebody white it's like oh it's amazing like it's different you know but then on the flip side sure i like to i i i i guess a better example would be eminem right so this is why I tell people Eminem is so good. Do you think Eminem is dope? Huh? Oh yeah. Okay, yeah, I mean so, I haven't listened to him in a grip, but I mean yeah, he's dope for sure. Okay, let's just say when he came out, he was the illest, right? Um, so let's say when he first came out, he was the illest. Why is that? That's because um, he was a white kid. You know what I'm saying? And in order to be accepted, in order to like even look even look half as good as uh, the, the black dude rapping next to him who got all the flavor and all the, all the, um, all the sauce, you know what I'm saying? Like he had to, he had to be even better than that. He had to even, you know what I'm saying? He had to try even harder. You know what I'm saying? And, um, I feel like, I feel like the same idea is true with like black people, you know, um, in the workforce, black people in America period is like, no matter what, because, you know, um, the way things are, it's important for us to, to always, um, you know, work harder and go over and above what anybody else is doing. Because if, if we, if we do everything on the same level, we look like we slacking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm tracking with it. What fascinates me is like, you know, I, I'm not trying to get it twisted here. Like, I think I might have grown up close to poverty. Um, I'm not sure that I grew up in poverty. And I think just because of how I grew up and where I grew up and when I grew up, I think that I'm like connected to uh, poverty, maybe in a way that a lot of, you know, white college educated middle class dudes are not like poverty seems much more for better or for worse. It seems much more familiar and home to me uh, than like 
middle class ism. Um, and the point of me saying that is because it is so much harder. Poverty is such a hard reality to live in. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And people like throw poor people under the bus every day of the week. And to the extent that African-Americans are in poverty three times as much as white people are, uh, I'm not saying that black folk are the only folk in poverty, but I mean, you think about, you know, if, if, if the average middle-class white person or non-poverty, non-poverty white person, uh, what their average day is compared to the average day of maybe a person of color who's in poverty. Well, and again, I'm not saying that all white folks are middle-class and all people of color are in poverty, but we're just using those as examples. So the white middle-class person compared to the black person in poverty, you just think about transportation. And it could start much earlier in the day than this. But for a white middle-class person, you wake up in a home uh, that you probably own, um, that you probably have some equity in, and you wake up maybe to, uh, I don't know, an alarm clock uh, and all kinds of comforts, whether it's uh, air conditioning and hot water and a coffee machine. And then you go outside and you start your vehicle, uh, which you own or you lease and you afford. And then you drive to work through whatever conditions, uh, it's raining or it's hot or it's cold or whatever outside. And a lot of times this will bug me out, but I'll see people waiting on the bus uh, all year long, sort of in all kinds of conditions. And when I was in Cincinnati, especially, I rode the bus a good amount just because it was a cheap, sort of efficient way to get around. You know, you remember that common song? He said, sometimes I take the L just to jail with the real world. Yeah. yeah. Like sometimes I just, you know, I dig just being on the bus because it, you know, it just connects me, I think, to a world that is much realer maybe than like middle class successes. The point is, is if you juxtapose that experience that I was saying versus someone who wakes up in poverty and they got to catch a bus and maybe they don't have hot water and maybe they don't have electricity and they don't have air conditioning and they got to take their kids somewhere or get their kids somewhere and they have less, less access uh, to comforts and amenities just for someone who's in poverty to show up to work uh, on time takes an incredibly larger amount of work than someone who is middle class. And that's not to mention that the person in poverty is probably working some shitball job where they make $7.85 per hour and they have to go through like the Olympics just to show up to serve burgers or just to show up to do some grimy work that you would never think about doing. And so this idea that like people in poverty don't work hard enough has always blown my mind because if you have any proximity to poverty, it is just a hard life. It's a hard reality um, to navigate. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so crazy. My, my, you know, we, I, you know, there was a, there was times where we were homeless. You know what I'm saying? There, and there's times where there was all of us in one bedroom. You know. And my mom would, you know what I'm saying, be working two jobs, you know what I'm saying? Like literally like she would she would um she would get off work uh early in the morning and uh go clean buildings, you know what I'm saying, or get off work late at night, get off work in the afternoon, like at five, and then at seven o'clock, you know, she'd be over to cleaning buildings, you know what I'm saying? Like like, you know, and then on the weekend, she probably doing somebody's hair. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, 
she was right, she was right. always working and always trying to figure out, you know, uh, even when she didn't have a car, we had, you know saying, always trying to figure out. Yeah, man, like it's crazy. It was the Olympics. I just thought you made, you made me think about that. Yeah. And so to me, it just seems like, you know, that that individual thing versus the institution um, and what we were saying back in chapter four that like people will talk about racism, but then they'll say, no, it's not around here because they perceive everything through the individual lens rather than the institutional uh, lens. And and then, you know, so if I, you know, if I start looking into society and I just see everything through the individual lens, well, I say, you know, if I want to make some extra money, I'll just stay at work later or I'll just, I don't know. But what that assumes is that every individual um, is equal, not like in the sense that every individual is made in the image of God because they are. So in the ultimate sense, yes, every individual is equal, but in the sense that like everyone has equal access, uh, to opportunity, uh, to employment, uh, to amenities. And that is just false. Um, and if that's false, then obviously individuals lives and experiences and realities are much, much different. So it's just, ignorant and I'm not saying you know dumb or bad or evil or wrong I'm just saying it's ignorant to say well people in poverty if they don't want to be in poverty anymore then they just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and work a little bit harder because it's much easier frankly to have a job that you get paid a salary in than it is I'm I'm not saying that you're not working hard if you have a career and a salary I'm just saying that Olympics reference that to live in poverty and to be in poverty and to Work in poverty is a grueling day in and day out experience. So it's not that people ain't working hard. It's just that there are some institutional realities maybe that are not being accounted for. Uh, but to bring things, you know, full circle before we make this transition, uh, which I think is just one transition that I want to sort of focus in on. Again, that initial quote that we had at the beginning of chapter five says that Christian thought and thus Western civilization are permeated with the idea that people are individually in control of and responsible for their own destinies. And I get that within this American democratic experience, there is some truth in that, that maybe there's some more individual autonomy than other countries or other periods in time. But even if that's true, that doesn't do away with all of the institutional, social, cultural realities um, that are a part of uh, this great America that some of us love uh, and some of us hate. And so if you're listening to this, what I want to encourage is just empathy uh, and compassion and understanding beyond uh, your own individual life that I want to encourage you to begin to look at and to question and to wonder about uh, institutional realities um, that make other individuals' lives vastly different uh, than your own. Um, and even just a quick example before we go to another commercial break. My homeboy hit me up this week. Uh, we're back in Evansville, Indiana. I got a friend in town who, you know, stays with his mom and their uh, heater is out. Uh, so he hit me up late one night and asked if he could borrow a heater because I had little like, you know, space heaters or whatever. But my only space heater was in my daughter's room. She was using it. So I was like, dog, I'm so sorry. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I can't give it to you. Uh, and I was his he doesn't have money. 
Uh, he doesn't have a vehicle. Uh, I am one asset that he has. I'm one resource that he has. And he has slept cold uh, in his bedroom for the past several nights because he just doesn't have a resource or an asset uh, other than me. And then it gets super comp- complicated for me because my car was broke down earlier in the week. So even when I wanted to help him, I couldn't help him until I got my car fixed. Uh, so it's just, it's it's complicated. People's lives are complicated and there are institutional realities behind um, individuals living out their lives and trying to do well and succeed and um, thrive and all of that. Uh, So when we come back, we're going to make another transition here in chapter five. Uh, There's a specific part that I want to zone in on. But again, we're going to pause for a brief commercial break. You are listening to the Read a Book podcast. Okay, again, you are listening to the Read a Book podcast. I'm your host, Sean Little. You can find me across the internet at I am Sean Little, uh, joined by my co-host, JB. Uh, find him at my name is JB and show us both some love. We would love to hear from y'all. Um, I've mentioned this over the past couple of weeks that if you would like to add your voice, uh, your actual voice to the Read a Book podcast, you can leave us a voicemail uh, at 470-722-0782. And I have a voicemail that I'm going to be plugging just here in a couple of moments. Uh, but first, so we can sort of build some context here at page 106 in chapter 5 of Divided by Faith. Uh, the title of this section is The Effect of Increased Contact with uh, African Americans. Uh, and we'll just point this out. Contact theory says that under the right conditions, having contact with people from other groups can reduce prejudice. Uh, So JB, I just want to ask you personally, not necessarily talking about white or black, but exploring that idea of contact theory, uh, that under the right conditions, having contact with people from other groups can reduce prejudice. Has that ever happened in your life? Has there been a people group that maybe you've had an ignorant prejudice to or an active prejudice against? And as you got closer to them, um, you were like, you know what? Maybe I was wrong or these people aren't what I thought of them. Has anything like that happened in your life? Uh. Yeah, I used to think that about uh, uh, most Bloods. I didn't like Bloods. <laughs> I only thought I only thought Crips was clean. Yeah, but uh, I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I lived in the Crip neighborhood, and most of my family was Crips. But now, like, one of my best friends is a blood, you know what I'm saying? He's actually locked up right now, but, um, but yeah, man, he, like, when he was out, he did a lot for me, you know what I'm saying? Um, and so, but, you know, um, yeah, I would say probably white people and mostly, like, older white people, just because I had, you know, I'm, you know, I don't even ever remember my anybody saying don't trust them. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, because my my mom, she had, you know, she had white friends. I remember like she had people from her job that she was really cool with that was white. You know what I'm saying? But I don't know what it was about like just older white people that, um, um, so. 
you know, and it, to be honest, whenever I got to a church with older white people, then I realized me like, you know, um, yeah, a lot of them, you know, there, there are a lot that was fake and phony to my face. You know what I'm saying? That I found out later, but there were a lot that was just real. You know what I'm saying? And wanted, wanted to, you know, um, they were, they were, they were open about their ignorance and, um, and said, man, like, I don't know everything. And I just want to, you know, I'm not going to always say the right thing. I'm not going to do the right thing, but man, like, um, I believe in you, you know what I'm saying? And, and, you know, uh-huh. there have been those people that have held me down like that, you know what I'm saying? In, in more ways than one. Um, yeah. in yeah. many, many situations, yeah. you know, and before that I was just really, you know, cautious around older white people for some reason. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it might've been TV. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's dope. And you know, I've been thinking through some of, some of what I'm about to share over the past couple of weeks as we've been chopping it up. Um, but I think I relate to that as well, you know, that older white men specifically. Uh, and partly I'm sure it's, you know, issues that I have with my own father. Uh, but I certainly think as a white kid who grew up in diverse neighborhoods, um, resonated with hip hop culture, and then in large had black best friends, and I had experiences with black families and going to black churches and black family reunions and black festivals and all that stuff. Like, I think especially when I was younger, um, I personified blackness much more. I kind of took that on as my own because I found so much uh, maybe fellowship or family or acceptance in uh, my black friends and black family more than I did even in my own white family. Um, so a lot of times older white men would really sort of not like me and say direct sort of diss me or so here's two examples. Um, and this is going to full circle to contact theory uh, where an older white man has sort of, you know, redeemed a lot of experiences that I have. But, you know, I had a principal in high school Um Basically, I got kicked out of my mom's house when I was a freshman and moved to, uh, well, when I was in the eighth grade, the summer before my freshman year, I got kicked out of my mom's house. I was in city schools and I moved out to the suburbs with my dad. I went to a enlarged Caucasian high school, uh, Lakota West, shout out all my people who still rocking with me from Lakota. Um, and I met my best friend, uh, his name is Jay black kid from a part of town called Forest Park, similar just to neighborhoods that I'd grown up in. As a matter of fact, the day that I moved into my dad's house in the suburbs uh, was the day that Jay and his black family moved in next door to my dad's house. Um, so I've just always found the timing of that fascinating. So Jay was my best friend. You know, uh, he would say in freestyles that he was darker than Darth Vader. So he's, you know, dark skin, black, beautiful, loved him, loved his family. Um, anyway, so I I kind of kicked it with Jay and then by way of Jay, sort of the the black minority within Lakota, I was kind of always with uh, those folks, especially early on. Uh, and I remember one day, I think it was like my junior year, uh, my white Italian principal, and I was thugged out and wearing do-rags and shit. I mean, I didn't have any business on what I was on, but I mean, that's what I was on. Uh, 
And my white Italian principal came up to me when I was walking in the hallway and like serious as death, he said, you are an embarrassment to white people. Whoa. And I think about that stuff nowadays. Like, I'm like, I bet you I could have sued him and caked off of the school corporation for saying that. But sure enough, you know, he said that to me. And then a couple years later, um, some of you guys will be familiar with Young Life. I was a Young Life leader in a suburb of uh, Cincinnati. And one of my co-leaders was from a a suburb of uh, Columbus. So I went with my man to his Columbus suburb house one like winter break or something. And I was just like in in clothing that was too large for me. Uh, But that was just how I wore my clothes then. And so I show up at his white suburb wealthy dad's house and his dad like opens the door to me standing there, looks me up and down and says, thanks for dressing up, Sean. And like had a like a look of disgust on his face and walked back in because it was like, you know, his son was bringing me and whatever I represented, blackness, I think, to a very white, middle, upper class sort of event. And like, he was upset about that. Um, yeah. So for that, uh, countless other experiences like that. And, um, you know, again, issues with my own dad and my own personal experience of being white and having a white family and black neighborhoods and black friends. Like, I definitely have a thing that I'm still, I think, working out towards older white men but back in 2014 i think uh an older white man you know he's probably you know my dad's age at this point mid to late 50s uh he pursued me uh to work at his organization at a church uh he gave me uh you know platform at the church to preach from to share my opinions to share my worldview to an enlarge white congregation uh he would sit and sort of shoot game with me like you can say whatever you want to say but realize that people are going to hear things from you in a certain way so he just gave me a lot of game he was patient with me he encouraged me he invested in me uh you know financially and ideologically like he's just my man and even like to this day he's my man jeff kincaid shout out to jeff kincaid i love you you know and so he's really challenged um whatever issues that i have with people who are like him, older white men, contact theory that under the right conditions, having contact with people from other groups can reduce prejudice. And that's happened in my life. Uh, JB, it sounds like it's happened in your life. Um, And as we tie back into divided by faith, essentially uh, what divided by faith, what the authors are exploring here, uh, and we see this in the middle of 107, uh, is that the higher the contact with black Americans, the less likely our respondents attribute primacy to individual level explanations of the racial gap, and more likely they are to attribute primacy to structural level explanations. So again, we're looking at uh, economic inequality between white folk and black folk, and what we see is that the effect of increased contact with African-Americans allows white people to not only see through the lens of individualism, uh, but to begin to see through the lens of institutional realities that maybe they hadn't experienced before they connected with a group of African-Americans. 
So to that extent, I want to pull in a voicemail uh, from our homegirl, Jessica. Jessica, uh, thank you for calling and leaving this voicemail. Uh, we're going to play that in just a second. But as another reminder, if you'd like to share your voice, you can leave us a voicemail at 470-722-0782. We're going to go to that voicemail here right now. Hey, Sean and JB. This is Jessica Crawford. Um, growing up in white suburbia, I was very naive. I was very blind to a lot of these things, but now living, you know, I moved from Louisville, Kentucky to Atlanta, Georgia, and being there almost two years, um, and planting myself in the majority of the black majority, um, a black majority community, I just realized that there is so much more um, that I have to learn, and that becoming a minority in those situations, it can be uncomfortable at first, but once you push past that and realize that um, that you can learn so much and really just become so much more um, than what you were before is a really great feeling. So I think it's just all about educating yourself. Um, I just challenge all my all my white um, brothers and sisters to just educate themselves and you know what you choose to do about that. Like Sean said, what you choose to do about that is what matters. Um, whether it's educating others, whether it's joining a group. Whether it's marching, whatever it is, um, just continuing to um, just press towards that. So, yeah, I look forward to hearing more of you guys um, and look forward to, to continuing reading this book and, and just um, realizing what I can do um, as a white female in this world. So, thank you guys. And uh, she reminds me of, of, of my homeboy in Manasseh, but. Um, I think that there are some things that, like for instance, there are some things that only I can, that I, that like, okay, let me start over. There are some things, and this is, this is, you know, goes to what Jessica was saying. There are some things, like for instance, um, if black people talk about, talk about um, police brutality, right? then I've heard white people say, well, what about black on black crime? You know what I'm saying? You saying, oh, you saying black lives matter. What about, yeah, so, you know, nobody black is, is okay with that. You know what I'm saying? Nobody black is saying, you know, we like killing each other, but y'all can't kill us. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, but... But if there is a problem with black on black crime, then you know that is a family issue. You know what I'm saying? That's for that's for you know that's something that only I want to hear about from black people. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? And there is something. So so like if if somebody wants to say, "Yo, we need to work on this black on black crime," then then I want to hear from a black person. You know what I mean? So what I'm saying is, is that there are some things that only I can, that, that, that only black people, that, that only I can say to black people that they'll, that they'll hear, that they'll get, you know what I'm saying? And, that, and vice versa. And then there are some things that only, that white people, white people will only understand if somebody white says it to them first. You know what I mean? Or says it to them at all, you know? 
I think a lot of what what she was saying, like, and you know, is is real, but they, they don't want to hear that from me. You know, I think that it would be more relatable from people like her. So I'm just happy that that there are people like her. And um, yeah, man, she's on point. So that's dope. And really, Jessica, again, shout out to you. Thank you for engaging thus far for leaving the voicemail. Um, I think that her voicemail essentially summarizes the end of chapter five, um, and we'll transition soon to chapter six. But in essence. Um, contact theory that until we get out of and this applies to everyone but specifically in regards to this book until white folk get out of white echo chambers uh, white only community white majority communities and and until like Jessica uh, they move from a suburb in Louisville to a black neighborhood or a black environment in Atlanta uh, they're going to be limited in their understanding they're going to be limited in what they can even think or comprehend or experience so props to Jessica uh, for changing environments, uh, props to her for being willing uh, to question her ideas and question her prejudices and her worldview, uh, and like she was saying, to educate herself. Um, and then, you know, peace also to listen and to read a book and choosing to educate yourself through that way. Uh, thanks to all of y'all who are rocking with us. Um, it is fascinating. I want to I wanna pull one more, well, two more quotes from the end of chapter five. Um, Emerson and Smith say here at page 110 that they do not think it too risky to conclude that evangelicals will make little contribution toward reducing the black-white gap. But we wish to extend our argument further to say that evangelicals, despite not wanting to, actually reproduce and contribute to racial inequality. Uh, And in large, that's because Christian thought and therefore Western thought emphasizes the individual and doesn't pay attention to the institution. And to the extent that we're blind to the institution, uh, we're blind to uh, the big issue, the macro issue. And we'll continue to go after individuals and tell them to work harder and stuff that doesn't affect anything uh, because there's a system uh, that is in place. And then one more thing, um, here from uh, 112 before uh, chapter 5 concludes, uh, the comment is, by not seeing the structures that impact on individual initiatives such as unequal access to quality education, segregated neighborhoods that concentrate the already high black poverty rate and lead to further social problems and other forms of discrimination, the structures are allowed to continue unimpeded. So to the extent that we're blind to the institution and blind to the structure, not only are we blind to it, but we sort of uh, co-sign the institutions and the systems that do grave injustice uh, to people and for the Christian, to people who are made in the image of God. uh, And that is not okay. That is not what's up. That is not what's good. Um, So we need to be engaged in learning things, unlearning things, uh, and then moving forward with action based on things that we unlearn. So again, this is Sean Little. I'm joined by uh, JB. You were listening to the Read a Book podcast. Again, we're discussing Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion, and the Problem of Race in America. And we're going to move to what is relatively a a short chapter uh, in comparison to the other chapters, chapter six. Uh, It's called Let's Be Friends, Exploring Solutions to the Race Problem. And again, we're looking at sort of enlarge white evangelicals um, 
white Christians and how they uh, process race and the racial divide, uh, the racial difference. And the big idea is, uh, is the miracle motif. Uh, as people become Christians, the race problem dissipates. Um, part of the belief in the miracle motif is rooted in the Christian building block of universalism. The miracle motif is the theological rooted idea that as more individuals become Christians, social and personal problems will be solved automatically. As more people become Christians, social and personal problems will be solved automatically. JB, what do you think about that? A lot of times we, we tend to, to not even, I mean, I, I think, I, I think that's the problem with Christianity, I guess, is the, is what I'm trying to say, is that we, um, I mean, like, it just goes back to, like, you know, what I was saying before, like, you know, you can, you can say and do things that are racist and not even realize it because you're so, you know I mean, like, we, we only tend to think Racism is one thing. It looks like this. It sounds like that, you know. And I think with Christians, you know, um, a lot of times we are so used to patting ourselves on the back for being Christian, and um, and and. Um, I don't know, man. It's 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 almost scary because, you know, what you like what you're saying and what you're describing is uh, is one of the reasons why a lot of my friends don't want to be Christian no more. You know what I'm saying? And um, because because Christians, a lot of times Christians will 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 act and treat people like they're 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 that good or everything's all right when it's not. You know, or um, or you know, I'm Christian. There's no way I could be racist. You know what I'm saying? And well, yeah, you know, that's that's not true because you know this this um, country was you know founded on uh, racist uh, people who are Christians. You know what I'm saying? And um, sure. yeah, no doubt. And. You know, a lot of those things that were passed down then we're still seeing the effects from today. And um, just because you're Christian doesn't go away. You, and when you become Christian, you should feel more responsible. When you be, when you become a Christian, you should um, you should feel you should you should take on more ownership. You know what I'm saying? When you become Christian. You should have, um, you know, more conviction on your heart. You know, and I don't think that that's true a lot of times with Christians. Yeah, I mean, it is It is fascinating. You know, again, the, the miracle motif is the theologically rooted idea that as more individuals become Christians, social and personal problems will be solved automatically. Mm -hmm. That's not true in my life. Uh <laughs> 
my personal problems, my marital problems, uh, my relational problems have not just automatically been solved uh, because I'm a Christian. And I became a Christian in 2003, 14 years. And my wife will tell you straight up that I was an asshole yesterday. I had a good day today. We've been apart for a while. Uh, but just because I'm Christian hasn't automatically solved um, everything that I brought into my Christianity, essentially, which is what in large converted me to being a Christian because I was an asshole, because I was messed up, because I saw my brokenness, because I saw my need for a Messiah, because I saw my own inability uh, to be perfect and to be as I was created to be. Uh, that is part of sort of the aha moment uh, of my conversion that, yeah, there was a Messiah, there was a Savior uh, who could save me from all of my brokenness. Uh, and while that is sort of true and eternal in that, you know, Christ has justified me and redeemed me, uh, shared his identity with me, uh, that is justification. That's not sanctification. Uh, and so while I've been justified, there's this whole process of becoming more like Christ, more like God. That is a is is like a two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, three steps back, uh, and things didn't automatically just get fixed. Um, and you know, to share sort of your sentiment, maybe. The sentiment of your friends. I mean, that is a big problem that I have uh, with Christians, that Christians will often say, look, all that matters is the eternal. Uh, all that matters is the soul. So we just need to get people converted or saved. And that's all that matters. Well, that's, that's not all that matters. That's dumb. That's a cop out. That's like too easy. That's putting the bar too low. Uh, and not only is that just theologically bogus, like God is making a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, we're going to be glorified in our physical body. So the soul isn't all that matters. But obviously, when God becomes a man in Christ, he's concerned with men and women, our physical experience, the actual earth that we live on. So we can't just get people uh, saved and allow the climate to change and ruin our rivers and our drinking water and our air because we pollute everything and say, oh, it's going to be all good. That's ignorant. That's stupid. And to the extent that that is, quote, Christianity, well, I don't agree with that Christianity either. That's bogus. Um, that's sort of a rabbit trail into our own opinions and preferences. But the miracle motif, this idea that when people become Christian, uh, they automatically are changed or improved for the better, uh, lends itself to something else that we find here in chapter 6, which is, uh, and I'm trying to find the exact quote here, but white uh, evangelicals uh, in large find that, here we go, uh, the race problem is not racial inequality, and it's not systematic institutional injustice. This is the bottom of 116. Rather, white evangelicals view the race problem as one, prejudiced individuals resulting in poor relationship and sin, and two, others trying to make it a group or systemic issue when it's not or three, a fabrication of self-interest. So if white evangelicals, and this is from their survey, calling thousands of people, interviewing hundreds, if white evangelicals agree that there is a race issue, um, the problem isn't racial inequality, and it's certainly not a systematic problem. The problem is that prejudiced individuals uh, aren't in 
good relationships. So that's why they're prejudiced because they're not in good relationships. And it's a sin problem, not a skin problem. And I can't stand that either. Or that there are people trying to uh, make it a group or a systematic issue when it's not because they're trying to profit off of it or gain notoriety or attention uh, or it's a fabrication of self-interest. So all these explanations, explaining away any kind of racial inequality uh, rather than just saying, you know what? Yeah. There is some racial inequality. We see it in our day-to-day experience. We see it throughout history. Uh, If and when white evangelicals say that there is, in general, in large, uh, they sort of explain it away to those uh, three other reasons. Um, And here at the end of uh, 119, and you'll see this, there's several uh, quotes I'm going to pull from. In large, uh, white evangelicals say anything beyond the interpersonal level is superficial and ultimately not a solution. So the only solution to the race problem is to get to know a black guy, befriend a black person, and everything's going to be solved because here at Midway through 119, it is individuals who must change, not the institutions, not the laws, and not the programs that shape individuals. And in my, you know, in my lowly opinion, it seems like if we're not trying to change uh, institutions, if we're not trying to change uh, laws, and if we're not trying to change programs that have great bearing on individuals, well, then things are just going to continue to operate uh, as they were. Because as we saw early in this book, there was a whole host of people who were not trying to change the institution of slavery and the slave trade. And then as we saw later on in the book, there was a whole group of folks in large white Christians who were not trying to affect the Jim Crow laws in the South that led to the civil rights movement. And to the extent that people are not trying to engage with the systems and societies that they live in and change them for the benefit of people who are oppressed, well, they're just going to continue continue to operate. They're just going to continue to happen. So I can be best friends with a black guy uh, during slavery, but his ass is still going to be a slave. And I can be best friends with a black person during the civil rights movement or the Jim Crow era South, but he's still going to be oppressed, have to sit on the back of the bus, have poor quality education, have poor access to water and housing. And just because I'm friends with him, his situation didn't change because the system uh, hasn't changed. So, so sure, maybe I encourage, yeah, I mean, be friends with as many individuals as possible. Uh, but my hope would be that you would learn their experience uh, and learn what it's like for them to live in an institution or a system uh, that's very different for you as a white person uh, to live in that institution or that system. JB, I'm ranting. Do you have any thoughts, sir? Cut me off. No, you're, you're on point, bro. You're definitely on point, man. Um, and I love what you're saying. You can be, you know what I'm saying? You can be friends with a slave, but he's, you know, he's still a slave. You're going to go home to where you go, and you're going to go home where he goes. You know what I mean? So. There was a movie that came to mind, and it wasn't black-white. It wasn't about, well, I guess it was about race. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's about the Holocaust, and there's a little boy... Uh, who, yeah, I don't know what it's called. Um, there's a little boy who, you know, is the child to this family and this family moves into this mansion and I guess the daddy like works for Hitler or he works at, um, 
what's it called, an internment camp. Um, so the little boy's playing out on the yard one day, and he runs up on um, like barbed wires, and eventually he meets a little Jewish boy uh, who is in a prison camp. Um, and so the free, wealthy little boy who's on one side of the fence befriends uh, the Jewish boy who is in the internment camp, uh, in the prison camp, and they meet with each other. They sort of play, you know, separate on different sides of the fences. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, they both go back to little boy goes to prison. Oh, little boy goes back into his house. Um, and eventually, spoiler alert, but I think the little boy who's the Jewish little boy uh, gets killed. Um, and so that came to mind because, again, that's sort of a great example of uh, an institution uh, which is uh, the Nazi prison camps, which uh, destroyed millions and millions of uh, innocent uh, Jewish people. And uh, that's the institution, that's the system of that day. And even though this uh, privileged, sweet little boy befriended uh, the oppressed little boy who was a Jewish boy in a prison camp, the individual relationship didn't have an effect at all on the institution that led to the oppressed boy's death. Um, so this idea that we can just befriend people and everything will be solved um, is foolish uh, at best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wish it was like that. <laughs> I, I wish it was that easy, but it's, it's not, you know. And I mean, like, but that's why I always say, like, it's important to meet people. It's important to, um, to uh, you know, have conversations and have, like I always say, have uncomfortable conversations that, that you know, you know, even if, you understand, know like, you might think you sound ignorant or whatever, you know, a lot of times if you don't know, you don't know. And, you know, give people grace, they'll give you grace. You know what I'm saying? And, um, but especially as Christians, you gotta be willing to take it there, and um, you know, you know, risk, you know, you know how you might look, and risk, you know, what, risk your comfort zone so that you can become better. You know what I mean? Man, I thought I thought this was super fascinating. Um, it's on page one twenty four, and again, you know, there's a lot of content in each of these chapters. Uh, so if we're missing things that you, as a listener, care about, uh, we would love to hear from you. You can hit us on uh, on the internet, on social media at I am Sean Little, and at my name is JB, uh, or you can leave us a voicemail at four seven zero seven two two zero seven eight two. We'd love to hear from you. You can influence and shape uh, the conversations that we're having on the Read a Book podcast. So please holler at us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but here page 124 the section is called comparing responses to the solutions to racism alternatives by evangelical type and race and so essentially we're looking at white evangelicals and black evangelicals um so on race issues white evangelicals are in kind similar to other white americans so white people whether evangelical or not seem to be pretty similar uh, about their thoughts on race uh, racism 
uh, and the black-white divide. Uh, they look at individual solutions. They don't look at uh, institutional solutions. And if white folks move closer to communities of African Americans specifically, uh, they begin to see things institutionally and not only uh, individualistically. Uh, but here at the top of 125, I'll read a few sentences and then pick a few statistics out of the paragraphs below that. So here at about halfway through the first paragraph on 125. Conservative black churches have traditionally served as a refuge from the impact of race in the United States and a place where institutionalized systematic factors are discussed and critiqued. As one example, consider that the civil rights movement, which worked to change the system and bring about greater systematic justice, was centered in the black church and largely, largely led by black clergy. So again, we're comparing black churches to white churches, black Christians to white Christians. So we see that uh, 58% of white strong evangelicals uh, cite the reason, um, I'm sorry, uh, We're talking about in the in the third paragraph on 125. Uh, the integration options tell us a different story. About one third of white and black non-evangelicals and half of white and black moderate evangelicals view integrating congregations as a very important way to address racism. But strong evangelicals differ by race. 58% of white strong evangelicals cite this reason. That figure swells to 87% for black strong evangelicals. So 87% of black folk are saying, yes, we need to uh, diversify and integrate our churches. But nearly 30% less white congregations are saying the churches need to be uh, integrated. So... The next paragraph, white and black strong evangelicals appear even more racially divided than other Americans. Evangelicals believe that their faith ought to be a powerful impetus for bringing people together across race. Ironically, their faith seems to drive them further apart. And that's really the thing that I want to uh, zone in what on. What page are you on? Uh, that was 125. Uh, right before the section that says solutions to racism from the perspective of the less racially isolated. The last sentence there on 125 before that new section says evangelicals believe their faith ought to be a powerful impetus for bringing people together across race. Ironically, their faith seems to drive them further apart. So the idea is that churches need to be integrated as a way to affect racism. 58% of white evangelicals agree with that, whereas 87% of black evangelicals agree with that. Nearly 90% of black folks say, yes, our churches need to be integrated to affect racism, but not even 60% of white people say, say no, we want to keep our churches white to the bone. We're good. Um, and I mean, that sort of has a history. Yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead, go ahead, finish. That's what that sort of has what? I guess I guess two thoughts. One, there's a history there because the black church in America has always had to do with the racial struggle. Uh, Africans were imported to the Americas. They were then Christianized. And so black Christianity in America was birthed during 
the racism of the African slave trade. Uh, so of course the church is going to be a place where they can talk about liberation and equality and change within society and change within systems. Whereas the white church, that's not the case. We don't, we don't bring that in here. We ain't talking about that in here. We're trying to keep that out of here. Um, and so I think that that still has effects nowadays, uh, which they're, you know, survey goes goes to sort of prove. But the fascinating point to me is that evangelicals yeah, believe that their faith should bring them closer to one another, but it separates them. It separates them. It pushes them farther away from each other. And if you ask them, is there a racist problem? They'll probably say no. You know what I mean? Um, and... Um, You know, I there's there's so many ways to break that down. You know, even you know um, financially. You know what I mean? Um, even culturally. You know, I mean, um, in the way we have church. You know, um, the way we play music. You know, but. It, it is just sad that that the same people who say there's no race problem are comfortable segregating, you know, um, a worship service. You know what I mean? Like that be like being okay with being okay with that. Um, one of the first songs you learn in Bible study is is. The one where it says red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in this side. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, you know, we're taught that. We're taught that church is the one place where, you know, that shouldn't matter, you know. And, you know, also on top of that, the history of Christianity for black people, you know, it's... Um, it's not a it's not a pretty one, you know. The same the same ones who, like you said, you know, like we were forced, you know, Christianity on us. Not only that, like churches being bombed and and um, burnt for you know what I'm saying, and not just burnt and bombed, but burnt and bombed by, by other believers. You know what I'm saying, like other Christians. Uh, so to go from that and then on top of that saying, well, we're okay with, you know, not having church or not, you know, mixing churches with, with, with black people is scary, man. And there's, there's just one more piece, and it's just so profound uh, from their research. Uh, this is the last word, and this is a long section, so go to uh, page 130. And the uh, section is called Evangelical Solutions to the Race Problem and Racialization. And chapter 6 ends on page 133, so we're about at the end of chapter 6. Uh, but I'll, I'll read this, and this sort of, I think, summarizes much of what we've read up to this point, but certainly uh, in chapter 6. So, Evangelical Solutions to the Race Problem and Racialization. Two factors are most striking about evangelical solutions to the race problem. First, they're profoundly individualistic and interpersonal. Second, 
although several evangelicals discuss the personal sacrifice necessary to form friendship across race, their solutions do not require financial or cultural sacrifice. They do not advocate or support change that might cause extensive discomfort or change their economic and cultural lives. In short, they maintain what is for them the non-costly status quo. And then they go on to Mm -hmm. unpack that and explain that more in the next two paragraphs. So again, I would point you all to 130. Uh, that whole page to read sort of uh, explaining the common problems and the non-costly status quo. But the point is, uh, that when you really drill people down um, on why change isn't happening, even if as a Christian, I would say yes, that, you know, in the mind and heart of God, uh, equality, restoration, redemption is something that God cares about. But for me to do that here on earth uh, is going to make me financially and culturally uncomfortable, so I'm not willing to do that. Well, that is a contradiction to Christianity in and of itself uh, because the epicenter of Christianity is a, is a man named Yeshua uh, who was so financially uh, compromised that he had to pay the price of his life uh, to redeem people to God, that the God-man was crucified uh, to affect change. And I'm not even willing to come out of my pocket. Uh, I don't want my finances to be messed up. I don't want my culture uh, and my cultural yep. benefit to be messed up. So even though I know that this race problem really is a thing and that it sort of contradicts Christianity, um, at the end of the day, I don't want to be uncomfortable. At the end of the day, I don't want that to touch my pocketbook uh, and I don't want it to affect uh, all of the white privilege that I have. So if I talk to my white buddies uh, about the experience of my black friends and that it is not as gravy uh, as our white experience, well, that's going to mean some cultural risk. And that might mean that they don't invite me to the next party or I'm not uh, in on their economic circles. I can't get a job promotion, this, that, and the third. And in large... According to the research of Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, when white evangelical people are grilled hard enough about why they're not willing to act on the change that they know is necessary, it's because it costs too much. Mm. Wow. That kind of reminds me of the last church I worked in. So it was a church um, close to like the suburbs. You know what I mean? close to like middle cl- the middle class areas and then like even the, the even so like it was kind of the middle you know what I mean um and so I came from a, I came from the church downtown and they brought me on to be the youth director up there at this church right and so all these all these hood kids and like east side kids followed me up to that church you know what I mean and um and that church already had a group of kids, you know. It probably had, it probably had like like six or seven kids, you know what I mean? But I came with about, you know, 20, 25 more on my own, you know what I mean? And um, and so, you know, they were like, you know, the kids there, they were, they were already there, like, you know, a group of like white suburban kids. And so 
um, when it came time for summer camp, they already had a camp they went to. You know what I'm saying? The dad they had gone to prior years, the white kids. And um, and it was really expensive. And so I made the decision at, as the youth that we would go to the the um, that we would all go together to one camp and it would be a camp that all the kids could afford. You know what I'm saying? And so when it came time, Pastor came to me and he was like, uh, what about our kids? Where, where are our kids going to go? And I was thinking, ain't, ain't they all our kids? And they can go to the same camp. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's the problem? But you know, um, now that was that was racist as hell. You know what I'm saying? But um, you know, if you if you ask him, if you ask him, he probably wouldn't say that if it was. You know, but in essence, what he was saying was, well, you know, our white kids are used to going to this really nice camp that costs a lot of money, and those are our kids, and these other kids aren't our kids, so. Um, we need, we, just, we need to separate them. You know what I'm saying? And the crazy thing is, the kids didn't even care. The kids didn't care which one they went to. You know what I mean? And so, um, so what I ended up doing was, I ended up taking them to both camps and just raising the money so they all can go to both camps. You know what I'm saying? But, but it just really, like, and after, after that I was done. You know what I'm saying? I was done. You know, now one more thing happened. So after camp, some of the so we meet back at the church and kids are getting picked up by their by their parents, right? And so remember I said how I raised the money so the kids could go to camp. So kids are getting picked up and this pastor, the same dude standing outside and he's like, These kids have, have nice these kids' parents have nice cars. Why are we, why are we paying for their camp? And I'm thinking for one, you didn't even pay for it. Sin and two, like, don't let don't even let me get, don't, don't even let me get on on cars. You know what I'm saying? Like, and what you saying right now? You know, like, you know, but but um, but it's the same exact mentality. It's like, you know, whenever he brought me on to work there. He wanted me to come in there and and direct his kids, the kids they had at their church. But whenever the black kids started coming, then he either wanted to separate them or, you know, he wanted to stay the way it was. And um, and to me, I was like, man, what what more beautiful picture is there for your church? You know what I'm saying? Like. I'm just thinking, like, don't even make sense. If that was my search, man, I'd be like, I got the dopest youth group right now in the city. You know what I'm saying? And and it, it really just messed me up. I ended up quitting. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, but I, it, you know, what, what you were saying just kind of reminded me of, of that situation. That's ill, man. And I think, you know, so chapter six uh, concludes with a substan- substantial shift in focus, thinking more broadly. So the last section here in uh, chapter six of substantial shift and focus, thinking more broadly, there's one line that I want to point out. 
Uh, if white evangelicals were less racially isolated, they might assess race problems differently and, working in unison with others, apply their evangelical vigor to broader-based solutions. Um, and again, this, you know, the comments that, that Emerson and Smith are making uh, are not only based on national social surveys that are being conducted uh, by non-religious organizations, but again, also out of their thousands of calls and hundreds of uh, face-to-face interviews. Um, so this isn't stuff that I'm making up, that JB is making up. Uh, this is based in their research and evidences that they've proofed. Uh, so to the extent that white folk can get uh, less racially and culturally isolated, uh, our perspective can be broadened. That's exactly what Jessica uh, was saying in that voicemail. Um, and I think that, you know, read a book uh, as a podcast is certainly a place for that. Uh, so if you're white and you're listening to this and this is expanding uh, your perspective, adding new ideas uh, to your worldview, we'd love to hear that you're rocking with us, that you're being benefited uh, from the conversation. And again, we would love for you to engage. So holler at us online at I am Sean Little at my name is JB uh, and leave us a voicemail at 470-722-0782. Uh, next week, we discuss chapters seven and eight. We are nearing the end of Divided by Faith. Uh, I appreciate y'all rocking with me, Mr. JB. I appreciate your time uh, this week, sir, and your comments, your perspective as always. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Uh, So we will be back at it next week. Uh, And in the meantime, read a book. Peace to y'all. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.